0: Hey, what's going on, all you whippersnappers and rapscallions? This is David Creek from the Westchester Church Podcast, and you're listening to... Oh, wait, I just said it. The Westchester Church Podcast. Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. happy 2021 everybody you know we survived to tell the story didn't we Amen. praise God well I'd like to begin this morning in this new year in the book of Zechariah if you want to be going there Zechariah chapter 9 close to the end of Old Testament scripture Zechariah chapter 9 and as you are on your way there I got to thinking in this past week about a town in Texas that a while back was so much unlike the rest of Texas that many people who had gone there on a visit said, it doesn't even seem as if I'm actually in Texas. And the name of the city was Austin, Texas, where at least a while back it became a very mysterious melting pot of all of these creative weirdos. Almost like a late 1960s Woodstock kind of environment converging there. And it got to be so unusual in that region of the country that they had developed a catchphrase that had become an official slogan for the city, which was Keep Austin Weird. And I think what the idea behind Keep Austin Weird was is that why would you wanna live in a city where everybody drives the exact same white truck, wears the exact same clothes, listens to the exact same radio stations, and speaks about the exact same two or three interests? When you could live in a place where everybody's ideas are embraced, where what makes us all unique is celebrated and welcomed, And we can be who we truly are as human beings without any ostracizing. And by the way, as they they all claim, the weirder you are, really the better it's going to be. And yet, whether it is in reference to the people of Israel who we read about, or it is us as, as the church of Jesus Christ, from our very start upon the face of this earth, It has been God's design that his people be an extraordinary nation that is distinctive amongst all the other nations and the peoples in this world. And ordinarily, I have never been a King James kind of guy, but there is one translation where I absolutely, where I prefer the King James rendering of the word as it speaks about the people of God. And it says, both in Old Testament scripture as well as in New, that God's people is a peculiar nation. That they are a peculiar um, nation and a people of His. Now as we hear that word peculiar, it does not mean that Christians are to be weird just for the sake of being weird. And yet rather what the idea really behind that is, is that We are to be so much unlike everybody else in the non-Christian world. That as the non-believing world looks at Israel then, or looks at the church of today, that what they see is something that is delightfully odd. As something that is refreshingly unusual that they really have never experienced before outside of the church. And so what God has always wanted to see in in his people, in his sons, and in his daughters, is that we are a rare jewel that is reflecting strange beauty in this world. And that we are a, a mysterious bird of paradise amongst all of the crows and the pigeons in this world. And what we will see this morning is that if we truly follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, we will absolutely be looked upon in the world as being very odd, as very peculiar, as very strange as we live the Christian life. And so this morning I want to begin a series in these next many weeks to come, and and I'm going to borrow from Keep Austin Weird. And yet I'm going to call this Keep Christianity Weird strange. Keep Christianity odd and peculiar. And so we begin in the book of Zechariah chapter 9 as the prophet Zechariah looks ahead into history and he speaks about a king who is to come. And in Zechariah chapter 9 starting in verse 9 here is what the prophet says and what he sees where he says one day, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! For behold, your king is coming to you. He's righteous, and he has salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle, or um, he says then how the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule them from sea to sea and from the earth to the ends of the earth. Well, as Zechariah, who is another um, a prophet, who is a poet, as, as he composes what we just read, this was largely received as something that was very ludicrous to their ears something that was nothing more than a pipe dream at the time. And yet, just little over 500 years after he composes this prophetic poem, one day there is this very loud commotion in the streets of Jerusalem. There is an arrival of a king who is entering into the city at Passover time. And everybody is spreading coats and palm branches across the road. And and if you know anything about ancient Palestine, whenever you saw palm branches being placed across the road, this was how a war hero conqueror is welcomed back into his city. Then as the king slowly begins coming into the town of Jerusalem, There are all these people who are shouting peace in heaven and glory in the highest for for our king comes to us. And as the gospel books later on indicate, there are people in the midst of this crowd who, who ask the question aloud, who is this king? Who is this man? Who is this fellow? And that's because this is a very, very unusual a very peculiar and a very strange king who is entering into the city. And as we know, the answer to their questions was, this is Jesus who is from Nazareth. Well, if we look at everything that we're going to see very closely here this morning, and especially at King Jesus, we will see that Jesus is an intensely a political king. Jesus is a political king. See, as we look at what is going on in our text this morning, especially later on in Luke chapter 19, as a Roman governor whose name um, is Pontius Pilate, as he enters into Jerusalem a little bit earlier on on the week of um, of the Passover, as as a Roman governor, his entrance into Jerusalem would have been a pageantry of imposing military might, where he would have surely ridden on not just a horse but on a war horse. And so, as all of the people are standing there, as as a Roman governor makes his entrance amongst all of the fanfare of the Roman Empire, they are hearing the clattering. I'm the hoofs of a war horse. What this is really doing is it is flexing that, that we have the authority here. We have all of the power and the supremacy. And yet really what this was, was an ominous a public service announcement that made everybody tremble. You see, what this means is that if even one of you revolutionaries tries to revolt against us, we will crucify you and we will bury you underneath your, your um, holy temple over there. And so that is how a Roman governor enters into Jerusalem, whose name is Pilate. He makes his entrance and he is now settled into the city. And it's during this week, maybe even... Only an hour later, perhaps, when King Jesus makes his entrance. And as King Jesus makes his entrance, this is the arrival and the entrance of a political king. Where for all this time, Jesus has been saying, don't let anybody know that I am he. As they say, this is the Messiah. And yet now as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, all these people are saying he is the expected one. And he is saying, shout it even louder now. And yet as this political king makes a very political entrance into Jerusalem, though, as we see in our text in Zechariah chapter 9, there is something that is very, very peculiar, something very strange. About how this king is entering into the city, and what is it? is that rather than being just another ruler who is entering into the city on a war horse, on the symbol of hatred and violence and of conquest, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on of all things on a donkey, which was a symbol of, well, peace, of Shalom. And not merely is Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, but notice in the text, on the foal of a donkey. You see, this is a very small adolescent donkey of an older donkey. In other words, this is an animal that is barely large enough for a grown man to even sit down upon. And yet here's where it gets very interesting as I had read this is that yes, Jesus is making a declaration of a peaceful regime and a peaceful empire on his donkey, but and yet there is an even greater element um, really behind this, is that this is satire. This is very creative and intentional street theater that he is conducting here. Jesus is conducting a mockery of the arrogance of the world's superpowers who are violent and who rule through conquest. You can almost hear the words of King David say, some trust in chariots and some in horses. And yet we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so, in other words, as the long-awaited Messiah makes his entrance into the city, he does not enter on an ominous war horse, but rather he enters into the city riding on a juvenile donkey. Or in our American understanding, in the world of today, as Jesus, as the Prince of Peace enters into a city, he does not enter roaring across the sky in a stealth bomber but rather he is tossing lollipops out of the Goodyear blimp. As Jesus enters in, he does not come crashing up and down all of those cobblestones in a tank. But rather the Prince of Peace enters awkwardly riding a children's tricycle with his knees high above on the handlebars as he chimes its bells on the bicycle. You see, what we see very loudly and emphatically here is that these are two very, very different um, rulers who come from two very, very different empires. And their agendas and their missions could not be any more night and day than they are. As I say, Jesus is a very political king. Here is what I mean by that as well. Now to our American ears, names such as Lord and Son of God and King of Kings and Lord of Lords, these have always been ascribed to King Jesus for us. And yet in the first century, first century Christians would have seen all of these titles appearing on coins. Underneath an image of Caesar. In other words, in in the Greco-Roman world, it's it's said on coins, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the Son of God. Caesar is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And of all things, those early Christians had, had very intentionally had decided that, no, 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 Caesar is not God. Caesar is not King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is. And that was a very, very subversively political statement for them to make. Well, also in this Greco-Roman society, on the first day of every month, it was known as as Emperor Day. And so what you would do every Emperor's Day on the first of, of every single month was you had to worship Caesar. And yet these original Christians had, had all decided, no, 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 this is not the emperor's day. This is the Lord's day. This day belongs to Jesus Christ. And that was a very, you know, a, a counter-cultural thing for them all to have said. Even the word gospel is a very, very, very political word. In fact, that word of of um, a gospel originally was in reference to a king, where a representative of King Caesar would would arrive and he would speak to all the people about what, what King Caesar had just accomplished. And he would proclaim good news about Caesar so that all the people could begin worshiping Caesar and his good news. And of all of the words, this is very intentionally the word that the Apostle Paul uses in his epistles, that that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It's not good news of Caesar anymore, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And I mean, if, really, if the message and the gospel of Jesus was nothing but trust in Jesus, and someday you will have a mansion over a hilltop, I assure you that the Roman Empire couldn't have cared any less about that. And yet it was only when Christians began using those specific titles, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as they gave it to another king from another empire, when they began to be under persecution. And so can you see how dangerous and subversive a message that was? Because what that message was that they were communicating to the Greco-Roman Empire was Jesus Christ is our emperor. Caesar is not. And so they were not arrested or thrown to to lions because they had religious beliefs. I mean, everybody had religious beliefs in that society. But rather what it was, was the political implications of Jesus is our emperor, that all of this persecution came upon them. And as for us in the world of today, anybody who who takes his, um, his kingdom seriously and who makes his Sermon on the Mount our constitution, we are going to be seen as unspeakably freakish, odd, and strange anomalies in our society. And oftentimes we will appear that strange even within the church at times. Yes, Jesus is a political king, and yet he is not a partisan king, though. Jesus is a political king, but he is not a partisan king. What I mean by that is that it's always been a struggle for God's church throughout all of the ages. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that we need to keep Christianity strained. And yet, if we really stop and consider it, not all strange is good, is it? I mean, there is good strange, and then there is bad strange. There is unhealthy strange, and I believe that we have all witnessed it in the realm of, um, of Christendom before. And yet, really, the most bizarre snare that the church, I believe, has ever fallen into is when a people who God has declared as holy and peculiar amongst the nations are set free by God only to look at all of the pharaohs, at the Nebuchadnezzars and at the at, um, um, Caesars of this world for their identity, for their happiness, and for their sense of peace. And yet what is even worse than, than even that though is when when Christians began convincing um, their own selves that somehow Jesus has become a member of their own personal political agenda and that Jesus somehow loves only the people who we choose to love and that he somehow hates the people who we have chosen to hate. As I once heard a minister say, that is absolute idolatry and blasphemy. And it reduces to Jesus to nothing but a mascot, rather than our Messiah of the world. And so here, here's what was going on in um, first century Palestine, where in John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed a huge multitude. And they're looking at Jesus thinking, look at all these miracles that he's able to do. I mean, he just fed almost 10,000 people from hardly anything. He can heal flesh wounds. He may even be able to bring other people back from from their their grave and from the dead. Imagine what he could do to the Israelite army. I mean, we would be invincible amongst all the other nations. So what are they trying to do in John chapter 6? They try to make Jesus king of Israel in a forceful way. Jesus will not allow them to even do that because as he later on says to the Roman governor himself, he says that my kingdom is not of this world. And it's almost comical how even after, I mean, Jesus is just moments away from his ascension to the right hand in heaven. And yet the very last question that his apostles ask him just before he goes up into heaven, after all that they've learned, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? In other words, are you going to kick the Romans' butts now before you go back to heaven? And Jesus says, in essence, my kingdom is not of this world. That is not for you to know when that's going to happen. And it's something that has continued even into our own country in the world of today. Where every Independence Day Sunday, you can go to at least one church in this country. And this church, every, every Independence Day weekend, has a service where they literally remove all of the songs of worship that are sung to Jesus to instead worshiping songs about America. America as men marched up and down the aisles of the cathedral holding rifles and military cosplay, singing aloud about how we have conquered our our, um, enemies um, in in World War I and in World War II. We were in a region once at a church where we went to a political event one, one evening. And I'm just looking around at all of the individuals in this church, and I mean, they are just so happy that they look like a child at a birthday party. They are singing songs about America at the top of their lungs. They get so excited as they hear about guns and about rights and about their own style of Americana. And as we come back into the church and into the cathedral, And they hear about the Sermon on the Mount and and, and his Beatitudes. There's just no excitement. I see people yawning and rolling eyes. And and it's just sad because as Moses comes down off of the mountain, we remember he sees everybody worshiping a golden calf. No, we don't worship golden calves in this country. But we do worship red elephants and blue donkeys and bald eagles. And yet as God's holy, peculiar, strange, odd nation, we have not been called to idolatrously worship elephants and donkeys and and bald eagles. We have been called to worship the Lamb. And really this is why the book of Revelation was composed. Revelation is not a book about um, American um, politics in the 21st century. That's a poor way to read Revelation. But rather, in a nutshell, what the book of Revelation is really about is it is just simply a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire in the 1st century. Where John is writing to a group of Christians who had become so comfortable living under Nero in Rome that there's no really a discernible difference between the church and the unbelieving Roman Empire. And so what John is warning against in, in Revelation to those Christians is be careful. Be very careful because this government and this empire is a beast. Do not compromise your... your um. Identity as a Christian as you compromise to the agenda of the Roman Empire. In other words, keep Christianity strange and cling to this odd and peculiar king to all the nations, Christ Jesus. And last of all, we need to keep Christianity strange and peculiar as we live for our strange and extraordinary King. Because no king who has ever reigned has been more grotesquely disrespected than King Jesus. Well, in Luke chapter 19, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he gets off of his young, young colt. And the Bible says that as he looks at Jerusalem on the hilltop, He sees Jerusalem sparkling in all of its splendor. And Jesus weeps over it. That word weep in the original language means very loud, impassioned, wailing at the top of his lungs. And that's because as Jesus looks at Jerusalem, he knows her deepest, darkest sins and her her depravities. Jesus is able to look ahead into history and and as he looks at Jerusalem on this day, he begins seeing all of the ghastly things that are going to happen less than 40 years later at AD 70. And yet more than anything else though, by, by far, Jesus weeps and he laments over Jerusalem simply because as he enters into the city, he understands that he is not the Messiah who these people want. His kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that they want to occupy. Rather, what they wanted him to be was Alexander the Great. And this homeless, weird-looking, 33-year-old carpenter king who rides into the city on a baby donkey he is just a little too strange and a little too abnormal for the Israelites. You see, they have once again succumbed to the age-old fear and the age-old mistake that their ancestors made centuries earlier in 1 Samuel, where they just do not want to stick out. And even in the world of today, it is such a temptation that that I do not want to be ever seen as, as weird. And so what their attitude was is that we cannot risk looking strange to everybody else. So what do we need to do? We've got to conform and we've got to compromise so that we can blend in with everybody else. And I mean, it goes back all the way to what their ancestors did, where, where what, what made Israel truly great and distinctive was that they were the one and only nation whose king was an unseen God. And this king had led them out of slavery through a wilderness into a promised land. He had defended them and had provided for them in a miraculous fashion. And yet now, what the people had said in those days was, give us a human king so we can be just like all the other nations that are around us. We don't care if it's going to cost us our sons and daughters. We don't care if it's going to make us poor and miserable. Just give us a king so we can be just like everybody else around us. And we see where this brings Jesus. Where the Roman governor is now, he has a whole whole battalion surrounding Jesus now. And they dress him up in a purple cloak. And they take a crown of thorns and they jam it into his head. Where they have a reed and they begin striking him over the head with it. And his skull is now bleeding and it's lacerated. And they begin mock kneeling before him and saying, "Hail, King of the Jews, look at the you know this this great Jewish king!" and they began spitting in his face. and yet by far, the very worst blows that he had endured and the worst spittle that had fallen from his face came earlier on from his own people, though, as Pilate asked them all earlier. And what shall I do with your king, Yeshua, Jesus? And many of them cry out, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Exactly as I fear much of the American church right now is is chanting, We have no home but America. We have no home but America. And so can you see how disrespected the Prince of Peace really is? And I appreciate so much what one writer named, named um, Brian Zahn says about this. Or he says, this is the true coronation of the world's true king. This is the royal um, 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 a pageant of the King of Kings. His acclaim is by insult. His crown is made of thorns. His scepter is a reed. The homage paid due to him is done in mockery. His procession is to carry a cross through a town. And his throne is that very cross. And yes, that is awful. And yet also it is strangely and beautifully a glorious thing. So as we close this morning... I mean, we have come to to, um, a Christian worship service this morning. And it is reminiscent of all of those people who were there as Jesus entered into town. And among the things that they had shouted in celebration of Jesus' entrance was, was a word, Hosanna. That word, Hosanna, is interpreted as, save now. Save us now, Jesus. Save us right now and Jesus can read between the lines as he enters into Jerusalem, what they really mean is, save us, Jesus, but only if you will help us to conquer and to bludgeon all of these Romans. Save us right now today, but, but only if you can make Jerusalem great again. Only if you can make us a superior world superpower who conquers all of our enemies with the tip of the sword. You see, tragically, they had rejected King Jesus, Prince of Peace. They preferred that violent style of of Roman government ahead of his government, a peace. Well, as we are at a um, a Christian worship service, we are marching in the parade of, of King Jesus Christ. We Every single time that we pray, that we give, that we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are crying out to Jesus, Lord, save. Save us from sadness. Save us from disease. Save us from clinical depression. Whatever it might be in our lives, Lord, save us. And yet the only question is, do we really mean, Lord Jesus, save us the way that you want to save us? Do we really invite him to be the kind of king and to be the prince of peace that he wants to be in our lives? And so my brothers and sisters, what we need to do more than ever before in this year and in this new day is we have got to keep Christianity strained. And peculiar and extraordinary and distinctive in this world and the way that we do that is by embracing by trusting by believing and by imitating this strange unusual and extraordinary king jesus christ